Pastor Javen begins a new series this morning called In It, Not Of It. In this series, we will dive into the book of Daniel and learn how faith can thrive in a faithless culture. So take a moment now and prepare your heart for today's service. 2 Peter 1, 1-8 This letter is from Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to you who share the same precious faith we have. This faith was given to you because of the justice and fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this opportunity that we've had to be in your house this morning. We thank you for the worship that we've been able to have with you to enter into your courts with praise and thanksgiving. Lord, we thank you that our heart is ready. Our heart, the soil has been tilled and is ready to receive what you have for us. Open our hearts, our eyes, our ears to receive everything that you have for us today and to walk in obedience with the instructions and the commands that you give us today. We pray all these things in your holy and mighty name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jana. appreciate that. Well, it's a good day. Amen. We are officially in the fall season. It's a South Carolina fall, but we are in the fall season. How many of you like fall? You prefer fall. You're glad for fall. How many of you, you're more of a spring fan? You like spring. I think we got more fall fans than we got spring fans. And you live in South Carolina. That's awesome. Um, One thing you don't see in the fall that you see in spring is this insect that... um, that flies around is pretty critical to our environment, we're told. And when these things start flying around, you see people, when they see them, they get close to them, they kind of freeze, get a little paralyzed, start swatting. Some just uh, kind of go about your own business because you know that thing is just going about its business, right? You probably know I'm talking about bees, right? Bees. Bee, the bees, they tell us they're pretty important to our ecosystem. And uh, the reason that they're important is not because of what they do for themselves. It's what they do to help other things flourish in our, in our world. We're starting a new series today that's called In It, Not Of It. And I'm excited about this series and where we're going in it. it we could subtitle this series, Bees in Babylon. All right? But we are jumping into the book of Daniel. And we're going to look at what Daniel teaches us about living in the world, but not of the world. Daniel 
is based in and set in Babylon. All right, it's during uh, it's it's Daniel and his friends are living out their faith in captivity and in exile. It's a picture of faith thriving in a faithless society in a faithless world. It's a picture of trusting God to the very end. Right? It's a picture of living in the world, but not of the world, knowing that God has got everything under control, the past, what we're living in right now, and the days ahead. The book of Daniel, it's inspiring. It's also very challenging. If, if rather not, whether you have been in church at all ever in your life, I'm, there's probably two stories from the book of Daniel that you've heard. Most everyone has heard. It, it revolves, the, the two stories uh, involve three guys that everybody knows as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and their trial in the fiery furnace. Right? That's what many people know about that story. They've heard that story referenced at some point in time. Another story that has always or has been heard referenced is Daniel and the lion's den. Right? We know those stories. Uh, Pastor Caleb uh, did a great job setting us up a few weeks ago, talking, going through some of these most popular stories in the book of Daniel. But what I want to tell us this morning, what I want to warn us is we have to be careful when we look at these accounts in the book of Daniel and not take from these accounts that if we do the right thing all the time, that God will keep anything bad from happening to us. When you look at the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, maybe you've heard that chapter in the book of Hebrews referred to as the hall of faith. It's, it lists out a bunch of people uh, who had great faith in God. The Hebrews, the author of Hebrews tells us that, that uh, it gives you accounts of people who lived great lives of faith. And the first big majority of that Hebrews chapters 11 tells you of these people who lived great lives of faith, who had great victories, who had great things happen. But if you Keep reading. You get to this smaller section down in Hebrews chapter 11 that talks about people who lived great lives of faith, but they also didn't see the promise on this side of eternity. These people were marginalized. They were martyred. They were persecuted. They were exiled. And they were captives in parts of their life. Daniel is a book that shows us how to live in Babylon, whether we are being promoted or being imprisoned. It is, it is a template for how to live this life, but it doesn't come with the promise that you'll get the results in life that Daniel and our three friends saw in their stand. But what we have to understand and what we have to see is that winning and losing in faith is not the scorecard. Obedience is. Obedience is. We have to live just as Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That means the things that you face in your life that you don't understand why God, right? You still trust God. So a quick overview, all right? Daniel chapter one, this is interesting. Daniel chapter one starts as being written in the Hebrew language, right? Because it's starting in Israel, but they're being taken captive, right? So Hebrew, it starts being written in the Hebrew language. In chapters two through seven, it's being written in Aramaic, which is the language of 
Babylon. In chapters 8 through, uh, through 12, it's being written back again in Hebrew as it's talking about a future time to come. It's really metaphorical, kind of this beautiful picture of faithfulness to God, no matter what cultural language you are surrounded by. It's a beautiful imagery and beautiful picture. Now, chapter one, like I said, it starts with their exile. Babylon takes Israel captive. We're going to jump into chapter one today. And just a note, you can read about them being taken captive. Second Kings chapter 24. This is where you see King Jehoiakim being taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. You could read the prophets, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel and Habakkuk, because their time as prophets is paralleled with the exile and with Daniel and what Daniel is living through. But we're going to jump in chapter one today. Chapter two, we see King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Now this is interesting the way chapters two and chapter six uh, uh, or chapter seven line up together. Some of you may not care anything about this, but I'm giving you the overview. Okay. Chapter two has a a dream of, of King Nebuchadnezzar and it parallels with chapter seven where Daniel has a dream, both dreams about kings and kingdoms. Chapter three tells the story of our three friends and the persecution that they, that they are threatened by, that they face. Chapter six parallels with that, with Daniel's story of the lion's den and the persecution that he's faced, the the threat that they're faced. Both, all of our friends, they stand with humble courage. They don't bow, all right? We're going to see that as we go through this. Then you got chapters four and chapter five. They parallel each other. This is the story of two kings, one a father, one a son. One humbles himself and has his kingdom restored. The other doesn't and is assassinated, all right? Then, so, so what we're seeing in chapters one, three, and six is God's faithfulness despite persecution. And as we read this, it offers us hope. It offers God's people hope in the midst of whatever suffering we might face. Chapters four and five show us that if we suffer, it's because of human kingdoms that rebel against God and basically become beasts of nature. And chapters uh, two and seven encourage a patience to stand until God establishes his eternal throne and his eternal kingdom. And we wonder, well, when is that going to be? When is God going to do that? When is God going to establish that? Well, Daniel in chapter eight, he has a vision that speaks to this. In Daniel chapter nine, we see Daniel in prayer around these visions that he's having. And he has a conversation with an angel. And then chapters 10 through 12 conclude the book of Daniel with, again, more vision of what is to come. And just like we cannot read the book of Daniel and say, if I do everything right, God will keep anything bad from happening to me. We also cannot read the book of Daniel with an attempt to predict when Jesus will return. There have been a lot of people throughout the course of history that felt they were living in the end time. There have been a lot of projections that Jesus is coming back. I remember books being written as me as a teenager of, of people writing and writing the books and professing, this is the year Jesus is going to return. And some of them very convincingly making this statement. And then we never see it happen. There's many that believe today we are living in the end times and understand, listen to me. I don't, I'm not saying we're not living in the end times. I mean, there's a lot that's happening in our world today that line up with things that we see spoken and prophesied about in scripture that even more than what those who predicted in years past. So I'm not saying we're not. What I'm saying is this, the point is, and has always been 
Jesus said it. No man knows the day or the hour that Christ, that he will return. Only the father knows that. So Jesus himself is waiting for God to say, go. All right. So nobody knows. So the point is, and always will be, we live every day as if today could be the day, but we also live every day believing that Christ reigns even now until he returns, that his reign is not waiting to begin. It's already started. The point of Daniel is that our culture has a pattern, but God has a promise. Humans and their kingdoms become destructive when they hold on to their set of rules and their standards and they don't acknowledge God. But the promise is that God will restore everything and one day confront that beast of nature and restore his kingdom. Daniel is a book of hope that should motivate his people to faithfulness in a secular world that's opposed to the gospel of Christ. Daniel is not just an historic account. It is a template for us to live by today. So that's a quick overview. So now let's jump into chapter one. You ready? I'm excited. It's going to be good. Daniel chapter one. Now let me give you a quick understanding of Babylon. Babylon was a legitimate nation, right? It was a legitimate nation. It was under the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar. They were a pagan, godless culture. Now, when we read this, some translations may use the word Chaldean. Some may use the word Babylon or Babylonian. My understanding and what I see through through the historical studies, Chaldea was a lower southern part of the region of Babylon. And Chaldea was maybe the, the considered kind of the stronger, the more brutal uh, group of people. And most of those that reigned in Babylon came from Chaldea. All right. So that's why we see that interlink, interlinking. Another thing that I thought was interesting in one of my study Bibles, when you look in Genesis chapter 10, it's given you this geology, genealogy of people. And, uh, and it lists some people. One of those uh, persons being listed is a guy by the name of Nimrod. Yeah, I don't know if you, okay. Uh, maybe some of you aren't tracking with me. Okay. Nimrod is a guy. And then after they list their names, then they start listing territories that are established. Babylon is one of those. In a footnote in that study Bible, it says that some historians believe that Nimrod was the founder of Babylon. Now, I couldn't find any other historical evidence to back that up. There may be some, I kind of hope it's true. The reason is because I don't know, maybe nobody's ever called you a Nimrod before. Typically, if someone said you Nimrod, it's not with a positive connotation. So it kind of explains why Babylon is the way it is. If Nimrod did establish it and set it up and set it going. All right. But, but I want us to see what's taking place here. So Daniel chapter one is where we're going to jump into, but I do want to caution you because this can challenge our theology for some of us. All right. Daniel chapter one. Verse one, during the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him, allowed him, gave him permission to 
take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So that Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia. Some translations say the land of Shinar. And placed them in the treasure house of his God. Alright, so pause with me for just a moment. Did you catch the words in this? That God allowed him. That God gave Nebuchadnezzar, an enemy nation, victory over Judah and God's people. This did not come without warning. The prophets had been telling the nation of Israel for years that this was going to happen. But King Jehoiakim had, was continuing to lead Israel into a place of, uh, of a downward spiral of unbelief. Of compromise in their faith. And God had warned them if they continued that they would be exiled. And God chose to discipline, and hear this, separate the faithful from the faithless. And he used an enemy nation to do it. But hold on to that thought about separating the faithful and the faithless. So God has given them victory, an enemy victory over his own people. Now this shook even the prophet Habakkuk. Remember I told you, you can read the prophet Habakkuk with us. Look at what Habakkuk wrote in, wrote in chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. O Lord, my God, my Holy One, you who are eternal, surely you do not plan to wipe us out, O Lord, our rock. You have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins. But look at what he says about them. You, you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they are? This shook Habakkuk. And if you're honest, you're shook sometimes. When things happen in your life that you can't understand why God is allowing that to happen. God allowed it. Now we need to understand this. Yes, Babylon was a specific kingdom in that day, a specific land, a specific place in 6th century BC. It's modern day Iraq. But in the Bible, Babylon is also representing a spiritual power at work in every secular kingdom that opposes God. Babylon is pictured from the beginning in Genesis all the way to the end in Revelation. The land of Shinar that I mentioned there in verse 2. If you go to back to Genesis chapter 11, you'll see the land of Shinar being mentioned. That is the place where a group of people came together and unified themselves and said that they were going to make a tower. Have you heard of this tower before? You read about it? It was the Tower of Babel. And they were uniting themselves to make their name great, not the name of God. So Genesis 11 tells us that God confused their languages and they scattered. God was not pleased with the fact that they were unified. Not that they were unified, because unity is a good thing. It's what they were unified over. What you're unified over is very important. And this is a word of caution to us today. And I believe that Pastor Brian was, was being led this morning and sharing what he shared. Not that he's not led in any other morning, but <laughs> we have to know unified unbelievers, unified unbelievers, unified people in a godless culture 
can be more powerful than divided believers and divided followers of Christ. That is why the spiritual enemy is so often trying to divide the body of Christ over frivolous issues. Many of those things Pastor Brian referenced this morning. I encourage you to go back to John's book and read John chapter 17, verses 15 to 24 this, this week. Write that down somewhere. John 17, verses 15 to 24. And I want you to read the prayer that John says Jesus prayed in the garden. You maybe read it before. But as you read it, I want you to take note of how much Jesus prays over the unity of those who would be the followers of Christ. Because Jesus knew that a divided body of Christ, a divided group of believers can be overcome by united godless culture. We have to be unified in our faith. Now, again, in the New Testament, the early followers used Babylon as code for Rome. When we get to the book of Revelation, we see that John in his vision describes Babylon as a prostitute. So we have to know this. Jesus calls the church the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ that Jesus came to serve and that he chose to use to bless this world through. But, the, but Babylon is a prostitute that the enemy uses to destroy whatever it can destroy. Babylon is basically any godless culture united against the gospel of Christ. It's what we see all throughout scripture. So from the very get-go of Daniel chapter 1, we see that God has assigned Daniel and his friends to Babylon. Does that mess your theology up in any way? God may not deliver you from Babylon. God may call you to Babylon. We, we sometimes consider because of the nature of our work and what we're surrounded with in work as a curse, but work is, was not a part of the curse. Work was a part of God's paradise before the curse came. And our call and how we work and how we relate to others in our calling in work can actually be something that reflects the goodness and the beauty of God to the world around us. God gave these men to Babylon. He separated the faithful from the faithless. If God's going to separate the faithful from the faithless, we would think the faithless are the ones that get put into exile, right? And the faithful stay in their home. Jeremiah, I told you he's another one of the prophets that line up with this. Jeremiah chapter 24, God's given Jeremiah a vision and he's talking about two baskets of figs. One basket's a beautiful basket of figs. Anyone would want. Another basket is a basket of rotten figs that would be horrible to even eat. And God is telling Jeremiah that he's allowing this good basket of figs to go into exile. And the bad basket of figs to stay right where it is. And look at what he says through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 24, verses 6 to 7, he says, I'll watch over and care for them, and I'll bring them back here again. I'll build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I'll give them hearts that recognize me as the Lord. They'll be my people. I'll be their God, for they will return to me 
wholeheartedly. So if you were being tested in Babylon, if you were in a place right now where you feel like, God, why do you have me in this place? Rejoice. Because God sees something in you. And God is using you. The brother of Jesus said it this way in James chapter 1. He said, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Because as you face them, they're growing you and they're making you even stronger in your faith. So as you go into those moments, stand and rejoice and say, God, how are you going to use me? And how are you going to grow me in this? But just don't let the test become a temptation from the enemy. Jesus, when he taught us to pray, when he taught his disciples to pray, he said, the part of his prayer, he said, lead me not into temptation. He never prayed, God, keep me free from any tests and trials. He just said, God, lead me not into temptation. So when you go into a test, don't fall into a temptation from an enemy. Ask God to protect you in that world. Now we're just through verse two of chapter one. Some of you are looking at your watches like, oh, you're excited or you're nervous. I don't know. Let's jump into verse three. All right. Stick with me. I'm not going to keep you any longer than I usually am. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. And listen to what he says. Select only the strong, the healthy, and the good-looking young men, he said. We don't, know, we don't always do this, but look at, you, look at somebody sitting beside you and said, they would have took you. Right? They would have took you. That's just so we all have encouragement today. You can't leave today and say, I wasn't encouraged. You were encouraged just then, right? He says, make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning. Are gifted with knowledge and good judgment. And are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years and then they would enter royal service. So here, King Nebuchadnezzar puts them through the school of Babylon, right? Daniel and the boys, notice they don't stand up to this. They don't stand up and say, no, we don't want to go through this school. You're going to notice mainly through chapters one through six that there are some things throughout their life that in Babylon that they comply with, but they never conform to because there's a difference. Daniel and his friends always chose obedience. And sometimes that obedience meant to the authority in Babylon, even though it was a godless culture. But their pledge of allegiance was always to God. So in their allegiance to God, sometimes their obedience to God would take precedence over their obedience to the godless culture. And that's when they would stand. Even if, it knew, if, even if they knew that it could cost them their life. But here's the thing. They did not have a fear-based faith where they were afraid that if I comply in some areas, just because I comply, it means I'm ultimately going to be brainwashed and conformed. But they also didn't have a fear-based faith that says, now this I need to stand in and against. 
They had a prayer-filled faith that allowed them to be able to have the wisdom to know when to follow God in any area of their life. Listen, we should be a student of our culture, but we shouldn't be a follower of it. There's a difference. The spirit of Babylon wants to train us, there's no doubt. And that's why Paul tells us our war is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of the air. And that's why he told us that we need to put on the full armor of God and pray in the spirit on all occasions. And why the willingness to go to these classes of Babylon and the school of Babylon and to go through them and graduate at the top of their class. Watch what it gave them. It gave them the right to be heard. And it gave them the ability to influence. It opened up doors for them. They knew that in order to bring fame and honor to God, they had to bloom where they were planted. Just like Joseph did in Egypt. Just like David did under Saul. Daniel and these boys did in Babylon and the early church did it in Rome and we can do it in a faithless world as well. So the boys are schooled and they're being led by a guy named Ashpenaz. Scripture says that he's the chief official. That's a nice way of saying he's a chief eunuch, which is a nice way of saying is he is never going to be able to have kids. Okay. Now history tells us that they were put under the rule of a eunuch that Daniel and these boys and whoever else was called up were probably also made eunuchs. We need to know this. The spirit of Babylon will always want to take away a follower of Christ's ability to reproduce. Because it doesn't want to see more believers in Christ. It wants to see Christianity and followers of Christ destroyed. Now what makes this even more amazing is scholars tell us that, that in this time, if they were taken, they were probably between the age of 14 and 17. So young people, you can live your faith out just like Daniel and these guys in Babylon, just like anybody else. And he can use you as an example to anybody else. Think about what's happening to these guys. These are real people who have had everything taken from them. They're taken out of their homeland. They have probably seen their families killed right in front of them. They have seen their temple destroyed. The temple where likely some of them were going because of how smart they were, were going and sitting at the feet of rabbi, hoping to one day themselves become rabbi. They've seen all this taken away from them. Now they're seeing their, their, their life as a husband and a father being taken away from them. They're never going to have this again in their life. And some of us feel like we've been put in a difficult environment. Very tough. Now let's keep going. Let's move. Chapter, uh, verse 5. Or verse 6. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. Azariah was called Abednego. Listen, again, not something they stand up to. They, they comply. They let them change their names. They let them change their names. All right? 
But here's, here's what they knew. Here's what they understood. What, them, what, what, what Babylon called them didn't matter. They knew who they were. Okay? But then we get to where they stand. Verse, verse, uh, verse 8. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Let's get verse 9. We're going to come back to that as we close. But verse 10. Ashpenaz responded, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Have you ever gone into a performance review when your boss had a machete on the desk? I mean, this is what Ashpenaz is, is dealing with. But Daniel and these guys, in, every, in what they stand up against, they stand up against it in humility. We're going to see it. We'll talk about this more in the coming weeks. They, they, they stand up with humility. And they make a deal with them. Now, what was the big deal about food? It could have been one of, one of the few things. It could have been all the things. It could be that this was food not a, that was against Levitical law, that these guys weren't supposed to eat. It could have been that the food, and likely probably was, was food that had been sacrificed to false gods. It could have been that they knew that if they sat down at the table to eat the king's food with the enemy nation, that this was the last step of assimilation and conformity into that nation. And this is where they had to draw the line. The bottom line is that they knew if they took that food, wisdom told them that they were separating themselves from Yahweh, from God. Here's what they knew. What the spirit of Babylon tries to teach you and what the spirit of Babylon calls you is not as important as what you let the spirit of Babylon put in you. What you allow in you is the difference maker. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, they operated from a place of conviction, under control, with character, and they worked with competency wherever they were called to work. And they knew that some things we comply with, but other things we will have to confront with humility so that we don't conform. And wisdom of God to know the difference and know, to where, know where to live differently is what allowed them to make a difference. There has to be a line that we draw in our convictions that we say, I'm not going to step over that line. And we don't determine what that line is. That's why we study the word of God. And we ask, how can I live like Christ? Because see, if there's nothing different about us, we'll never make a difference in the world around us. Listening to what Babylon says is not the problem. Conversations are good. What Babylon calls you, that's not the problem. Your identity is in Christ. You cannot become what Babylon wants you to become. And you cannot conform where Babylon wants you to conform. Jesus said it this way, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. He calls you light or salt. And uh, he did call you light too. But I want, to, I want us to see this from the message translation. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. If we as the church and as followers of Christ conform to the world, 
will neither help preserve the culture of God's creation, nor will we demonstrate the distinct beauty of Christ in it. Jesus is the ultimate example of living in it. He represented God's purity and perfection without compromise. And everywhere he went, it didn't matter who it was, sinner, temple goer, they all wanted to be around Christ. And as we close out today, I want to look at, I want to show you two verses from Daniel. God gave an enemy victory over Judah. He gave an enemy victory, but look what else he gave them. Verse nine, now God has given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. Someone who is not even Babylonian. He gave that Babylonian ruler, ruler respect for him. And then look at verse 17. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding for every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. And as you read through the end of Daniel, you see that these guys separated themselves from everyone else. And every time the king talked to them, they knew he knew there was something different about them. God gave them favor. He gave them grace. He gave them provision. He gave them wisdom. He gave them knowledge. He gave them understanding. He gave them everything they needed to survive in a godless, faithless culture. And God has given you everything you need to survive in this world today. First thing he gave you, we said it last week, for God so loved, he gave us Jesus. And Jesus gave his life. Jesus never defiled himself with anything from the enemy's table. He wasn't just threatened with death. He suffered death. But he did it so that we could have victory. Real quick, look at how Paul wrote it in Romans 8, verses 35. Can anything separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean no longer... uh, He no longer loves us if we've got trouble or calamity or persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death. As the scriptures say, for your sake, we're killed every day. We're being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ. That's why we read that opening text that we read this morning from 2 Peter. Peter wrote those letters to a to a body of people who were scattered all throughout trying to live out their faith in faithless cultures, just like these exiles in Babylon. And what did Peter tell them? Verses three and four. He says, by his divine power, power, God has given you everything you need for living a godly life. Then look at verse four and how he ends it. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. You are bees in Babylon. It's not what you do for yourself. It's what you do for the world around you to help it flourish. You're in the world. You're not of the world. So live in this world. Operate from a place of conviction, under control, with character, working in competency in everything that you're called to do. And know when to confront with humility so that you don't conform. This is what you're called to. Let God make a difference through you as you live different from the world. 
If you need prayer in any way today, we would love for you to reach out to us. You can go to our website, bwccamden.com, go to our contact page. You'll find the link there to uh, request prayer or send us anything that you uh, would like to communicate with us today. Or you can also simply text the word prayer to 803-676-7566. And we will be back in touch with you to find out how we can be in prayer for you. God bless you. We hope that you have a great week.